0: Welcome back to Across the Movie present presented by Bulwark Plus. I am your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark. I'm joined, as always, by Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today?
1: I am maintaining.
2: I am so happy to be talking about movies with friends.
1: First, stop being controversies
0: not- and non How did you explain Cocaine Bear to your kids? <laughs> That's just one of the many questions uh, on tap after a Hollywood-filled evening in the ads on Super Bowl Sunday. Um, similarly, my four-year-old, you know, he he looked me in the eyes and he said, but Papa, Ezra Miller has been arrested for myriad crimes. How can they continue with a Flash movie when Batgirl was so cruelly canceled by Warner Brothers? I didn't know how to respond to him, so I just teared up and looked away and thought about how this would probably be the last time any of us get to see Ben Affleck as Batman, R.I.P. Snyderverse. Um, Speaking of Affleck, he was in a Dunkin' Donuts commercial, which was pretty funny. I thought it was a funny commercial. Hollywood as a whole took over the Super Bowl commercial uh, It has been doing so for years now. But this year felt like especially egregious. Just Hollywood stars everywhere. Will Ferrell doing ads for electric vehicles and also Netflix. Um, which I'm sure his handlers at Apple TV Plus, where his last several projects have been, just love. Um, Anna Ferris doing spots for avocados, Ben Stiller and Steve Martin are making fun of actors being in ads, daring us to ask if Diet Pepsi, which is a notoriously disgusting drink, as anyone who has ever been asked, is Pepsi okay at a restaurant would know, um, is good, or if they're faking it when they drink it and say, ah, oh, so tasty. Uh, Adam Driver was in the weirdest ad of the night, and I'm not even talking about... A spot for his movie 65, which involves him traveling back in time to fight dinosaurs. Diddy was there for Uber, Danny McBride for Downey, John Hamm, Brie Larson, and Pete Davidson for Mayonnaise. Rockstars got into the action to tell us t- to stop calling accountants rock stars. Bradley Cooper did an adorable spot with his mom. He's so clean cut and friendly. And what I'm saying is, I have a T Mobile plan now. I signed up for it immediately. I was like, this is how you get family love. Um, still, I can't help. Uh, but feel as though the ad men have decided to do what Hollywood more broadly has done, and that's replaced general creativity with brand awareness, right? Like, I mean, I guess like the ad for the Ram truck that was kind of like an an erectile dysfunction ad was kind of funny, I guess. I don't know. But it was also advertising a truck that literally doesn't exist yet and won't be on the market for like 18 months. Uh, what's the spot this year that people are going to remember for decades to come? Like the what's up ads, right? Or the the frogs. The Budweiser, the Budweiser frogs. You remember the Budweiser frogs, right? Um, Leaning on celebrities to be like, hey, you like famous people, right? Maybe you'll like our random product, too. It feels like a cheat. It's a shortcut. I want I want creativity from our Madison Avenue people. Don Draper didn't die for our sins, so you could just throw some random actor into an ad. And say the product, right? I don't think so. No, no. Okay, but seriously, Alyssa, how did you explain "Yayo Grizzly Bear" to the kids? What? W- <laughs> what? W- you you texted us. You were like, I can't believe I have to censor the 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 show for my children.
1: Yes. No. I we'd gone upstairs to watch the Super Bowl and turned it on, and like the cocaine bear ad was starting up, and so I did a patented like mom lunge for the remote and. Fortunately, my daughter misheard me and thought I was talking about Candid Bear, Candid Bear. not cocaine. So, <laughs> yes. So she thinks there's a movie coming out called Candid Bear, and I am spared having to explain cocaine for another, like, what, three or four years? We'll see.
2: What do we think the logline is for Candid Bear? <laughs> bear tells too much to cameraman. Bear, like, bear is, tells uh, too many truths. Like, a... Gets
0: hunted by angry townspeople. No, I mean, like I feel like cocaine bear is just one of those things where you, you explain to the kids, "Look, that's a medicine for mommies and daddies. It's not for children. You can't take it. It's like the liquor cabinet over there. Don't, don't. Uh, no, but all right. So seriously, I, I, the the thing that jumps out this this year is the just overwhelming preven- presence of Hollywood. Uh, people. And it really does. There was a piece in Defector just saying like, you know what? It was cool when we judged people for selling out. And I think that's I think we need to get back to judging movie stars and TV stars and everybody else for selling out. If you show up in an advertisement, you should you should should feel shame and you should be shamed for for doing it.
1: Can I carve out an exemption for celebrities who are clearly actually obsessed with the product they're hawking? And I speak here, of course, of Ben Affleck and his beloved duckies. Um, both, like, I am legally required to defend Ben Affleck's love of Dunkin' Donuts since I am from New England. And so, it's like, there will always be, like, a little bit of Dunkies flowing through my veins. But also, like, Dunkin' Donuts is a great product. It's basically honest, working-class Starbucks um, in that, like, it's there to get you a lot of sugar and get you fat. And we're not, like, pretending that it's some artisan, you know, Italian nonsense. Uh, and it's delicious. And so watching him in a spot that, like, plays up both the like a celebrity works a normal job and it's a surprise angle with like his legitimate longest established love of the product with the Jlo lo cameo was the only acceptable celebrity appearance in a commercial of the night
0: no i think that i mean look i think that's fair right like ben affleck has kind of un- been forcibly memefied for his love of dunkin donuts so i think it's i think it's fair that he gets to kind of flip that around on his head uh so that's okay that's okay but uh, I, I do feel like everybody else – I mean, like, the Adam Driver one in particular, like, that one almost gets passed just because it's so weird. But, like – But also
1: Adam Driver, right? Like, and of the generation of sort of young actors, like, he's sort of the one who I would think would be least likely to sell out in some way. I don't know why I think that, right? Like, he's, he's going to be in, a, like, a time travel movie where he fights dinosaurs, like – Maybe you know. Maybe he has a cocaine bear of his own to take care of, or something.
2: He might also be Mister Fantastic. Is the rumor in the forthcoming of you know, yeah. uh, Fantastic yeah. Four film?
1: I mean, look, I get it. Everybody likes money, but that w- that one was surprising to me both because it was like just like it's a pr- it's an awful ad. And it's like Adam Driver. What are you doing? What are
0: you doing, Adam? What? Uh, Peter, you're uh, the libertarian on the show, which means that you love money above all else. Are, are you are you in favor of this triumph of capitalism over art? Capitalism and commerce crushing uh, uh, decency and artists beneath its heel.
2: I mean, yes, obviously, this is there's a market for this stuff, and it seems like we should we should have that market. So it is kind of interesting that this is happening. Uh, in some ways, Hollywood stars are the crypto of 2023, like relative to 2020, like relative when to they, last when year when they weren't actually when, selling yeah, crypto <laughs> in 2022. Right. Um, but uh, so maybe what does that tell us about the future of Hollywood? Eh, maybe not so great. But this is this is one of the fruits of globalization. So if you guys go back to the 1990s when, you know, at least Sonny and I, Alyssa, you were maybe starting to watch movies in the 1990s, right? Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And like when we were watching movies as high schoolers, as, you know, as teenagers, right? Like stars were these rarefied things and in in the United States. And we saw them as American movie stars. But a lot of them did advertisements, just never in the North American or less often in the European market. They went to the Asian market to do big advertisements. In fact, this was Such a common occurrence that this is maybe not the premise, but a like an underlying premise of the movie Lost in Translation, which features Bill Murray, a sort of aging past his prime star, who is now getting paid a huge amount of money to do a very small amount of time endorsing uh, Centauri whiskey in in Japan. And the idea back then was that you could do that sort of thing if you were a star as long as you did it out of your main market. Because you didn't want to be seen as somebody who was essentially just a cheap pitch man hawking a product in the, in the, you know, in your market. But then, then what happened was YouTube and the internet made all of the stuff that, all of those ads that we couldn't see. They made them all globally available and it, there was no way to hide them and thus no point in hiding them. And the money was there. The, the brands wanted to pay the celebrities, and the, the consumers, I don't know, maybe they wanted the celebrities, maybe they wanted uh, Ben Affleck and Adam Driver hawking uh, Dunkin' Donuts and whatever else they were advertising as well. And this seems to me like totally fine. It is, it is a matchup of money that is seeking talent— Which is to say, seeking the the built in name, you know, brand recognition of a big star, Uh, and those folks are going to make a ton of money off of doing this, and frankly, that's going to subsidize Adam Driver at least doing stuff that we want to see him doing because the like the. While I can't speak to individual rates for these actors for these specific ads, in general, it has been the case that when big brands pay these big actors, they're getting paid a lot more, at least on a sort of on on an effective per day basis than they are even to do very big budget movies. And that's the allure for them. And so this sort of pads out their finances and makes it possible for them to keep making movies in an era where movie making has become more and more risky.
1: One thing I would also say is that we're in this interesting era where a lot of celebrities have incredibly lucrative side businesses, right? I mean, George Clooney and his tequila brand were sort of the initial version of this. But, you know, Jessica Alba has an incredibly, you know, popular and profitable uh, baby products line. The number of other celebrities who have gone into the alcohol business is huge. And in fact, I mean, the, the halftime performer at the super bowl is rihanna who has functionally stopped making movie but has a at this point you know billion dollar cosmetics and fashion empire um that has basically eclipsed the work of making the art that she was doing that she was performing at the super bowl and so you know it's interesting that more of these that those celebrities aren't necessarily selling their brands specifically at the super bowl but um we're in an interesting era of corporatized celebrity of which this is really only a subset
2: and i would say that some of those products are in fact quite good um uh, uh, just specifically on the the liquor front matthew mcconaughey's branded uh, wild turkey whiskey long branch is shockingly good and reasonably priced and it's just kind of, like, it's kind of wonderful, and it sort of tastes like what whiskey, branded with Matthew McConaughey's name on the bottle, should taste like. It's kind of smoky. It's pulled from the Wild Turkey Distillery, which is making some of the best, most consistent product uh, in the whiskey world uh, today. Also, some of the most reasonably priced stuff. Um And it's great. And, like, th- that is... It's not, not all of that stuff is great. I think, you know, some of the, some of the celebrity branded booze is, uh, is it's usually at least pretty good, but it's often overpriced for what it is. But this, that sort of thing can be a service
0: to consumers. Well, there's also, you know, um, it's, worth, it's worth noting that there has been a real sea change in audience uh, attitudes towards stuff like this. You know, once upon a time, it used to be considered a real faux pas to To be in these things uh to you know make it make it look like you were more interested in money than authenticity, whatever that meant right artists you know musicians in particular would get would get all manner of shit from their gen x uh and and earlier fans. You know, for for selling out for, for giving their commercial uh, giving giving their songs over to commercials. Um, and that has that is changed You were an indie rock band about feelings and now you're selling Cadillacs. And that has changed that has changed dramatically for a couple of reasons. One I think is just the, the absolute triumph of popularism, right? Poptimism, uh, the idea that the the idea that a a thing being popular is equivalent to being good and high quality and uh, advertising is just another reflection of the, um, the, the Poptimist ethos. Uh, I, I, and there's a book called Status and Culture by W. David Marks. By W. David Marks, uh, that kind of gets into all this and the the shifting attitudes and how all that has changed. I recommend people checking it out. It, again, in particular, the music industry have changed so much that you you just cannot make a living selling records anymore. That is, nobody makes a living by selling records, um, and it's getting harder and harder to make a living by touring. Touring itself, unless you are one of these big um, legacy prestige acts, right? It's hard to make money touring. The way you make money is by selling. Your like Apple picks up your your song, or BMW picks up your song, or Honda picks up your you know whatever whatever company uh, picks up your song and uses it in their ad campaigns, which then in turn increases streams and like gets people interested in your show because it's showing up everywhere. I'll put it this way: I have less of a problem with musicians doing this than I do with actors doing it, and I don't know why. I don't know what that what part of me it is that is like more annoyed by this when actors do it.
1: Well, I mean, is it that you know the musicians? I don't know. Maybe it's just part of the sort of IPization of our pop culture, right? I mean, it's like you don't have anything else to say about the product, so you're just throwing you know a per, IP it's in the lazy. Form of a person it's just at us. it's lazy.
0: Yeah. All of these ads yesterday with the the celebrities were almost uniformly terrible and lazy. So I think that the real problem here is that you've chosen to watch the Super Bowl.
1: I mean, your problem is that you're not a patriotic American, Peter. But, you know, you're just going to have to deal with that. It's the most
0: popular show in America every year. Like, there's nothing There's nothing else that comes even close. Oh, wait, wait, wait.
1: Now
2: who's now who's the popularist, right? Didn't you just deliver a great lecture I mean, on how thing, just because things are popular I mean, doesn't mean they're good?
0: Well, I, I agree that it doesn't mean that it's good, but it could be better. Could It certainly used to be better. I feel like also I feel like part of the problem also is that people started watching the Super Bowl for the ads instead of the ads being like a pleasant bonus. Now it's like, oh, we got to We got to have the most the most viral.
2: But they did that because of the clever ads of the late 90s in particular, the Budweiser, uh, you know, frogs, which uh, delivered us, by the way, uh, the whole uh, Johnny Depp superstar era of Pirates of the Caribbean, because those were all directed by Gore Verbinski. And like that was his that was his early pre you know pre uh, before he did Mousetrap before he did the Pirates of the, Car- uh, the Caribbean films he was doing Budweiser ads and this is this to me seems like there's always been this kind of back and forth in this trade between advertising based filmmaking and art based or sort of co- you know just sort of entertainment based filmmaking and part of the reason we loved those 90s ads is because they were they they were little short films that were designed to be memorable and, and through being memorable. Would sell it. Would sell product, and I just I don't feel like there's any conflict here. Uh, you know, uh, d- great directors have like moved back and forth between those realms. Um, Tony Scott, in particular, got his start doing advertisements, and then brought that to you know to, to Top Gun and to, to uh, many decades of great films that were obviously influenced by advertising. And to me, these things like they're the same thing. They are like, it's just in one case, they're trying to get you to buy a BMW. And in the other case, they're trying to get you to buy a movie ticket and some popcorn.
1: I mean, maybe the problem is that the ads are just bad. It was like, it was a bad, unengaging year for ads. And, you know, after we've had this sort of cultural acknowledgement that as cynical as it is, advertising can be an art. It's sort of a bummer to watch people who are... In, some, in many of these cases, rightly famous because they're talented, starring in what amount to a bunch of really awful 30-second productions.
2: I would just say that the cure for this is uh, David Fincher's Nike ad from a number of years ago titled Fate. I think it's from 2016. It might be, it's, but it's a, right around there. And it is just an amazing little tiny short film uh, that is designed to sell you shoes, uh, but it's just a fantastic little tiny piece of filmmaking about sports, which I don't care about at all. But I love David Fincher, and it's a great example of how this sort of thing, uh, how Hollywood talent can be put in service of uh, of advertising of, uh, and, and go really, really well.
0: Uh, so what do we think? Is it a controversy or a non-troversy uh, that the, the ads at the Super Bowl were too reliant on celebrities? Peter?
2: It's a controversy, and I'm available for selling out. Should any brands out there want the Suderman uh, stamp of of approval, Alyssa?
1: Um, it's controversial. Donkeys forever.
0: It's a controversy. Get get go back to the, the studio, artists, and make art, not commerce. You leave the leave the ads to the people who can't get work in movies. You're taking you're taking jobs from hardworking, non-SAG yet members. Of the acting public. Knock it off. All right. Uh, Make sure to swing by Bulwark Plus for our bonus episode this week. where We're we're, we're, going to talk all about Channing Tatum. Uh, Is he the last Hollywood star? Many questions about Channing Tatum. Speaking of the charming potato, uh, on to the main event, Magic Mike's Last Dance. The third, and perhaps final, entry in the Magic Mike series. Uh, Before we discuss this film, I think it's worth setting the stage and explaining how we got here, right? Back in 2012, Magic Mike was a surprise, commercial, and critical hit. It grossed $167 million worldwide on a budget of $7 million, Um, uh, and uh, people were surprised by both the critical and the commercial success because they weren't really expecting much out of the series, despite it being directed by Steven Soderbergh, good director, everyone likes him, um, and starring Channing Tatum, who had wowed audiences a few months earlier with the 21 Jump Street uh, reboot, revival, whatever you want to call that. Um, And in recent years, uh, in the years before that, had really uh, struck gold with the Step Up series. I think people were expecting Magic Mike to be something like a grown-up version of the Step Up movies, right? Channing Tatum would dance, women would swoon, we'd all move on with our lives. And instead, what we got was a shockingly good movie. I mean, genuinely shocking. Not only uh, did it have greater depth than anyone expected, because it was really, the movie's not really about male strippers. It's about the post-Great Recession economic landscape. Um, It also starred Matthew McConaughey in the role that basically kicked off the McConnaissance, right, as the scummy strip club owner. Um, And we shouldn't undersell this, uh, but that movie actually had as much eye candy for the guys as the gals. Uh, Maybe we can talk about that, too. But... There's been an effort in recent years to recast Magic Mike XXL, which is the first of the sequels, as superior to the original. And this is an insane thing that has been happening. I want to. I'm put. I'm putting my foot down now. That's insane. Um, because that movie is what everyone thought Magic Mike was going to be, which is just a kind of a lame dance movie designed to appeal to older women. Like fine, whatever. But it wasn't good. Not a good movie. Um, which brings me. Uh, to Magic Mike's Last Dance. Steven Soderbergh is back in the director's chair for this one, Uh, and Mike, who's played again by Channing Tatum, is once again in rocky financial straits. The pandemic wiped out his custom furniture company, so he's tending bar, Uh, and while doing this, he meets Max, a wealthy woman played by Selma Hayek, uh, who is separated from her wealthy husband. She asks him for a dance. She's willing to pay for the privilege uh, and something more, Uh, and she gets every penny's worth. Uh, Mike turns down Max's money afterwards. She's like, I don't need your money. I don't want it. I I did this for free. Uh, And Max decides that the world needs to see Mike's gift. So she puts him in charge of the theater she has acquired and, I guess, the separation. It's not really clear to me how that works, but whatever. Uh, Mike is taking over uh, a stodgy old play and he's revamping it with male strippers. But Mike seems he seems lost. He seems lost. He's not quite sure what he's doing. And really, that's kind of the problem with this whole movie to me. Magic Mike was a movie about a guy who was a hustler and a striver, realizing that the world in which he was getting involved was not only seedy and shady, but kind of soul-killing, right? That whole movie is about coming to grips with the fact that stripping is kind of gross, and extricating himself from that life is his arc. That's the arc of that movie. Um, And frankly, that's why Magic Mike XXL doesn't work, and I I think it's why Magic Mike's Last Dance doesn't really work either. The movie isn't about Mike, but Mike's producer, Max, She's trying to find a product that will appeal to people. She's trying to figure out her own life, but it's not personalized enough to work. I don't know. It's just never clear to me at all why Max is there, and he himself seems almost uninterested, at the very least kind of confused by what's going on. He's just going along with what she wants. It doesn't help that the big production that they're building to is the dumbest thing I've ever seen. Like the just the dumbest thing I've ever seen. There's one great dance set piece at the end involving a ballerina and a huge manufactured rainstorm. Which, fine, that's lovely, but the rest of it seems is just like ge- genuinely mentally deranged. I'm also just like kind of flummoxed by some of the details that feel wrong in this movie, like Mike's business going under during the pandemic.
1: Yes, this is my huge problem with this movie, <laughs> okay. right? Like an incredible. I'm sorry. I, I, yeah. I, like an no, but I'm mean, incredibly. I, but like but... No, no, no. I'm I'm sorry. I just an incredibly. Good-looking former male stripper who makes custom furniture, often out of rec- like sort of recycled or recovered stuff. During one of the greatest explosion in durable goods spending in history, like he would be doing so well. Right.
0: This was like I mean, this was like the one big industry during the shutdown was home home renovations, home decor. People were just like bored and nesting. There's a zero percent chance his, his he would have business gone on have TikTok
1: gone and by the end of the pandemic would have been like bought out by, like, Room and Board or West Elm or somebody, and, like, he would have so much money. The trophy insane. I,
0: I'm glad we're on the same page uh, uh, on this, because as I have here in my script, I feel like it's a small thing to complain about, but it just, like, drives home how different this feels from the original. The original was about a guy trying to make it in the world. And this is about, I, I don't know, what, what all women want everywhere. I you By rejecting specificity and embracing generalization, the whole thing is just kind of doomed But I don't know. Peter, you you like this movie more than either I or Alyssa did, I think. What was it about it that appealed to you?
2: This isn't a very good movie. It's totally absurd, and every major plot point just doesn't add up, doesn't hold up to even the slightest amount of scrutiny. But it is a kind of entertaining and enjoyable movie because moment to moment, scene to scene... Soderbergh holds all of it together with sharp observations about how people actually are. And there's so much in this movie that is done just a little bit off kilter, that is given just a little bit of gritty granularity that wouldn't appear in a version of this movie directed by anybody else, even with essentially the same script. And so I, I just want to point out a couple of small moments that I, are, are I think... Um, representative of what makes this movie again not good exactly just easy to watch and enjoyable uh after that big dance sequence that you mentioned with the ballerina and the the rain inside and however they did that which like i don't know if they can really do that inside this seemed like those are hollywood rain towers and then like suddenly there was dancing happening five minutes later without any water on the stage? Whatever, it doesn't matter. After that happens, Channing Tatum and the ballerina, whose name I don't think we even know, they go backstage, and they're just sort of chatting about how it was a good dance, and they pulled it off. And it's not like a big scene where, like, anything is revealed. There's no the specific dialogue there. It almost feels improvised. But he, Soderbergh is showing us this little tiny bit of backstage Performer uh, uh, exultation, right? Like this, this, like this, glee they had at putting on something wonderful, and it's it's a little human moment that wouldn't be there in most versions of this. In most versions of this, you would have had high fiving and like a little speech about how that was awesome and meaningful. Instead, we get like these people are exhausted, they're sweaty, and like they're just sort of chatting at each other, and it doesn't matter what they because it doesn't matter what they're saying. They're just real people. Existing in a, something like a real world, even though, like I said, every single big beat doesn't work. Um, another, there's another moment in here where they're rehearsing, and uh, all of the, the the super hot guys are on stage, and they're like mostly shirtless, and I don't even remember what bit it is, but this is before the the big uh, before the big dance, and in most movies, this would be shot straight on probably from below to emphasize oh look at these larger than life guys with their big abs and their 12 packs and their how many like little muscles like you you would it would be all about the hunkness of it and instead Soderbergh has angled and turned the camera and he's he's not he's showing us the what's happening on stage but he's also showing us off stage and showing us Channing Tatum there Sort of with his arms crossed, being confused, not looking not not exactly liking what he's seeing, have right he's sort of, like in that moment, you can see Channing Tatum's character thinking about the the show and thinking about this thing that he actually does care about, which is you know which is dancing and you know sort of making a good show and pleasing people and the movie is just filled with little tiny bits like that when they build out the the stripper stage in front of the uh, in front of the old stage so they expand it this in turn leads to a very funny plot point about whether or not the historic like this passes historic review uh, board stuff which I of course appreciated since in fact that stuff is highly politicized and mostly total nonsense uh, especially in big cities um, in, in Europe and the United States. but uh, what what you see is like you, they actually show you the the little screen that the contractors are using to like design all of this and sort of like pull it up. Right. He's like Soderbergh is just continually inserting ordinary, boring, bland little bits of real life into this otherwise completely absurd, completely hyperbolic, exaggerated for effect, not, uh, unbelievable, mostly pandering towards, you know, the, the older women audience that the Magic Mike franchise is now targeted at type of movie. And the movie just has so many of those details, so well observed all throughout, that I couldn't help but kind of sit back and enjoy... The, the silliness of it, even though, like I said, I, I agree with you, there's no plot point in this movie that is important that makes any kind of sense. The characters don't make any kind of sense. The, like the, the big, the fundamental thing, like uh, the, the, the premise of it just is... Beyond the the furniture store, like be, would, beyond the fact that that would have succeeded, the premise that like Max would just be like, "Hey, this guy gave me an incredible lap dance. I want to put you in charge of directing, hiring, and directing a dozen guys on a stage show at a to get back at Like it doesn't in any way make any sense at all. And yet, Soderbergh is just uh, you know, invested in making these kind of interesting, specific little people within the absurdity of the premise and I
0: appreciated that. Alyssa, you are the target audience for this movie. What did you make of Magic Mike's last dance?
1: Are you saying that I'm like an older woman, Sonny? No, I'm just saying that
0: you are you're a woman, so that's like that's it. That's half the audience Fair. here. They're going this is going for women.
1: I was really frustrated by this, um, in part because I love the first Magic Mike so much. I just think it's incredible. And um to see the franchise complete its arc from saying that like You know, selling your body has a sort of corrosive impact on your soul to a final beat in this trilogy where the movie itself is selling like an actual live Magic Mike stage experience that like Soderbergh and Tatum have put together and that has sold like $125 million worth of tickets, right? Like the franchise has completed the full arc from – critique to product and as a sale it's not a very effective one right it's you know i mean as funny as the beat is with the like lonely historical preservation lady who gets like sort of seduced and reawakened by this like somewhat funny surrealistic dance on like a london double-decker bus like
2: Cause you could absolutely take over a bus like that. That's a real thing that normal people can do in the real world.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Like it's a movie about what women want that doesn't have that much interest in, like women broadly. Right? There's a, a different version of this that hints at the idea that Maxandra is like kind of a dilettante, right? That she is someone who adopts charities or interests just to fill up her time, and that she may not have any particular, like, actual talents or passions. And the movie doesn't actually do a very good job of selling the idea that this is a, you know, sort of a creative awakening for both of them, right? And there's a version of this movie where Max just is a dilettante, right? Where she you know, sort of talks Mike into believing that this thing that he knew was spiritually not that great for him is in fact like his great calling and like this is his artistry. Even where she convinces him to give up the furniture stuff and do this instead. And then it turns out it really just is about getting back at her ex-husband and she's kind of, he's kind of stranded there with a long-term plan. And instead the movie wants to sell the two of them as like a grand artistic collaboration and passion and other than the fact that, like, you know, Salma Hayek, Pinot, uh, and Tatum have good chemistry with each other. I mean, Channing Tatum has good chemistry with basically everyone. It doesn't really sell their artistic collaboration or the idea that that, like, as human beings, they would be good for each other, right? It tries to elevate, you know, the stripping in part because they would like to sell more tickets to the stage show and ends up cheapening the emotion at the heart of it um and i just found it really hard to take um i've been more irritated by this movie the longer i've thought about it like i sort of sympathize with that guy on twitter who's like waiting in the who's like i'm in this garage waiting to fight everyone involved with magic mike's last dance It's <laughs> <laughs> like I, I i was like i I second that dude like he has my fists
0: i uh no it's it's interesting i so here can i can I run a half thought out theory by you guys I haven't actually i haven't written this anywhere because i don't I, I I'm not sure how to articulate it fully. Um, because I do think, look, I have a lot of respect for Steven Soderbergh, who I think is a great director, and I think he is up to something here, even though I don't think it entirely works. I don't think it's uh, a coincidence that the main character, the producer character's name is Max, um, for instance. Uh, this was originally a, a production that was supposed to be on HBO Max. Um, he was given forty million dollars or something like that to make another Magic Mike movie, and was like, "Sure, I'll do that." Um, Steven Soderbergh is famously kind of platform agnostic. He's been working with Netflix. Uh, he is not. I think he. I think he likes the theatrical experience, but is not, you know, a crusader about it, like some of us on this podcast me. He
2: made one of the very, very first uh straight uh, a day and date VOD films, Bubble, which almost no one saw, um, is totally weird, maybe his worst movie. But yeah, he's been uh, he's been an experimenter with formats for a while.
0: So I think I think that he is he is making a broader point here about the the um yeah, especially with the voiceover. So this, this, uh, the structure of this film. There's a voiceover throughout about the nature of dance and what dance means throughout the, the the centuries and how humans have essentially evolved with dance. That dance is a thing that you know is is almost coded genetically into us or some people, some of us. I, I don't have that dance gene. I can assure you, I have neither the dance gene nor the friendliness gene that apparently go hand in hand. But uh, okay, so so Max is uh, wants to revamp the theater, right? She wants to she wants to bring this humanizing experience to more people, so that's why they're putting on this big show. I just don't. I I like I I kind of I think I kind of understand what he's getting at here, but I don't think it works. Or am I am I wrong? Am I just like reading too much into uh, the name of the character? My have I have I gone off the rails here?
1: I mean, Maxandra is a ridiculous name, um, but uh, I mean, I, I, I kind of buy I, it. But no, uh, but so
0: so. But here's and here's the other part of this is that Channing Tatum's character Magic Mike looks lost in this whole movie. He is doing this specifically because she asked him to. He has no interest really in it until at the end where he's like, "All right, I can do this thing, and it's going to be pretty great." Um, and it all kind of clicks for him. Which again, like. It's that feels like how this entire project came together. Max, well, HBO Max came to Steven Soderbergh was like, hey, do a magic mic thing for us. And he was like, yeah, I got I'm I, I mean, I, I, I'll do it. You didn't give him give me the money. I'll do it. And it kind of gets it's up there. It's like. Bleh. But it's there. That's that's how I feel this whole thing is. I feel like it's a, a, just a microcosm for like the streaming moment that we live in right now. The irony, of course, of all this is that it wound up in theaters. It went it was, It went instead of going straight to HBO Max. The people at Warner Brothers were like, well, let's put it in theaters and make 20 or 30 million bucks that way. And then we'll put it on HBO Max. People will watch it that way.
1: Maybe.
2: This does not seem at all implausible to me. I wouldn't in any way put it past Steven Soderbergh to embed a critique of the uh, f- the the financial and distribution system that got the movie that he is making made inside the movie. Like that's that's very Steven Soderbergh.
1: But then I kind of wish it was a better critique. Well,
0: I mean, that's that's the thing. Is that it really does feel like a first draft? This feels like a first draft. This feels like me sitting down and just like saying these words on the podcast without having written them out or thinking them through, just ram- rambling, and then somebody's like, "Yeah, let's turn that into a podcast episode."
1: Again, then the version of this where Maxandra is a total dilettante and the movie has like a much sour ending would be much more convincing, right? It's like, well, this is
0: why. I mean, this is why the first Magic Mike is actually very good, is because it is it is a fairly sour look at the whole industry. I mean, it is like, it is a, it is not a, like, everybody's going to dance and be happy movie. That's because that, I, like, I'm sorry, that world is weird and shady and seedy. And it's, it's, it's fine to treat it that way.
2: I don't know. It's a great movie about Tampa and the weird economy of, a, of Tampa in the early 10s.
1: Well, yeah, and just all the details in that movie about, like, the roofing contractor that mike works for like hiring guys off craigslist because he doesn't want to deal with union labor and limiting them to like a pepsi a day in their contracts and just yeah i mean the scene tatum has with betsy brandt like the loan officer at the bank where he's trying to like effectively charm her into overlooking his credit score and everything else and give him a loan and you know it's like sort of that when it, he realizes that won't work that sort of flash of anger in there it just yeah it's, it's a real good movie and this is not i mean i think magic Mike xxl is fun right like the you know the sort of impromptu scene to i want it that way at the gas station convenience store is like legitimately really funny and fun um i mean another problem with this movie is that none of the dancers are characters right like And it's not like the characters in the previous two movies were, like, deeply developed, but they were human beings. And again, there's, like, another potential sour note here. Why doesn't Mike bring his friends to London with him, right? Like, why doesn't he start by being like, well, these guys are really great and can help me run this show? Like, he effectively screws them over, right? Like, this is sort of, like, the big payday and chance at, like, even just to, like, go to London, and the movie never even gestures at the idea that he would bring them along.
0: Well, maybe he finally realized that Kevin Nash is a terrible dancer. That's like the the low key funniest thing in the first one, which I rewatched uh, last week as as prep for this. Was like the scenes with Kevin, the scenes where they're doing like the big group dances. Kevin Nash, who once upon a time was a professional wrestler, and is he plays Tarzan uh, in these movies. Um, if you watch the group dances, he is ve- he is just doing the most half-assed you know doing like basically mimicking the motions dances that i've ever seen in my life it's it's very funny um and it's not it's not called attention to which uh which makes it even funnier it's he's just there doing all right uh enough about this uh so what do we think thumbs up or thumbs down um magic mike's last dance peter
2: it's kind of tough i like i said i found it enjoyable it's not a good movie though uh I'm going to give it uh this like the most thumbs down thumbs up. It's a thumbs up. But it's like the smallest thumbs up I can possibly give it.
0: Alyssa. Thumbs down. Uh thumbs down sadly though if this if this HBO Max theory comes together in my mind, I might have to flip that to thumbs up. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see how that goes. All right, that is it for this week's show. Uh, make sure to head over to Bulwark Plus for a bonus episode on Friday. And tell our friends. A strong recommendation for our friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. If we don't grow, we'll die. If you did not love today's episode, if you want to yell at me for rambling my half-assed thoughts on the show, that's fine. You can do that on Twitter, at Bunch I'll convince you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed anyway. Uh, see you guys next week.